When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Go back to the first year of my seminary studies. It was the year that I got my first rosary, which might seem like good timing, but I was at Wycliffe College, an evangelical, low-church, Anglican seminary, and rosaries were somewhat frowned upon there. But it was part of of exploring something more of the, the depth of the faith, spending time with the mysteries that were there, discovering one of those things that is not always so evident from the outside, from a Protestant perspective, which is that the rosary is not first about Mary, but is about coming to the mother of Jesus that she might open up to us the things of her unique perspective on her son and the mysteries of his life. That was easy enough to follow in most of the mysteries, just the 15 in those days. The luminous came later in terms of the discipline. But at the end of the glorious mysteries, there were those two strange ones where there's the assumption of Our Lady and the coronation of Mary as Queen of Heaven. And for years I practiced what I called my suspension of disbelief, that I would come to those and I couldn't say that I believed them, but I couldn't say I didn't believe them. I just wasn't sure what to do with them. So I offered them up to the Lord as part of the meditation. As the years went by, I grew in my understanding of some of what was going on and then as we went through years of ministry in the Anglican Church of Canada and came to that point that we shifted out in 2004, came into the traditional Anglican communion, the Anglican Catholic Church, which was what this place had been part of, I encountered a much deeper Marian devotion amongst my colleagues and opened up something more of the understanding. Among other things, they pointed me back into the councils of the church, And even though I was acquainted with the councils, it was the first time that it dawned on me that it wasn't in one of those Catholic councils after East and West divided, or even in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, that properly a council of the whole church, held by East and West, yet is overlooked by much of the West. Anglicans tend to go with the first six councils. And other parts of the church, if they pay any attention, go with the first four. Even if they don't acknowledge the councils, still hold to the teaching that is there. Because those are the key councils for things of the the Trinity and the two natures in Christ. But surprised to find that it was in the third ecumenical council. So well within even that more sparse assessment of things, there in Ephesus, that the church set out that title for Mary of Theotokos, Mother of God, and very much a title that was given to her because of what was being said about Jesus. No, is this or is this not? Very God of very God, who has become man for us. Is the incarnation, the Spirit coming upon, the Spirit of the Son coming upon this man, Jesus, at some point in ministry, or is there the one Christ? from the conception, from the beginning of his earthly life. And if that's the case, then within the womb of Mary, 
is the one who is fully God and fully man, and it's right to call her Theotokos and not just Christotokos, not just the mother of Christ. Well, years flow by. We came to that point of the movement towards full communion. And that line that Brian will be asked to declare today, I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and proclaims to be revealed by God. This interesting understanding that to come into the Catholic Church was no longer to stand outside and say, oh, well, I I believe that, but I don't believe that, and if I'm going to believe that, prove to me in Scripture where I ought to believe that. And suddenly is to come and say, if this is the church, and she's saying, this is the faith, this is what we've received from the Lord, and this is what we, in turn, pass on. This is the tradition that... If I was to come into that communion, I received that faith. It wasn't for me to decide what the faith was. Some of you will hear the echoes of St. John Henry Cardinal Newman in all of that, a major influence on my thinking at that stage. Well, and still. But suddenly looking at these mysterious doctrines of Mary, it wasn't about me saying, well, where, where were those in Scripture? Where is that doctrine to be pulled out of the Bible, but much more, this is the faith received, and therefore we go to Scripture to explore the doctrine, to see what the Lord has to say. If these things are true, he's prepared the way. He's opened up things. It makes sense. It's going to be consistent because he doesn't contradict himself in his word. So I went back. It was first thinking about it coming into the church, but particularly preparing for ordination when I knew I would have to preach on it too. I'm a biblical preacher generally, so I want to be able to go there. And there are a few things that really stick out. The first is that the assumption is not unprecedented. We all know that there are two figures in particular, righteous men of old, who in the Old Testament are taken up bodily into heaven. We don't know quite what the Lord did with them at that point, but there's Enoch back in Genesis 5, seven generations out from Adam. He's this man who is distinguished from others that for 300 years it's noted that he walked before God. But then we hear that, that he walked with God and he was not because God took him. We're not really told any more about him. He pops up again in Hebrews, and it's mentioned that he was translated. He's mentioned in Jude. And with Jude, we get something of a Jewish tradition of prophecies that come to be uttered by Enoch later. And there are pseudepigraphical works that purport to be the, the books of Enoch. Elijah. Elijah is the other one. We know of him being taken up in that fiery chariot. We again, we don't know quite what the Lord did with him at that stage, but it's a bodily going up and it's a righteous man and it's God's business. We know of Elijah that there's the prophecy of him returning. And Jesus points to that being fulfilled, the spirit of Elijah upon John the Baptist. Some, because of those stories, though, would conclude that 
if that's precedent for the Blessed Virgin, it means that at the end of her life she didn't die, that she was simply taken up. And I believe that one of my colleagues in his oral exam preparing for ordination in the Catholic Church was actually asked about the assumption and spoke of Mary coming to fall asleep and be raised and had one of the examiners sternly take issue with him and tell him that, in fact, she didn't die. We believe she didn't die. The church teaches that. Well, no. (laughs) Actually not. Uh, There is a little ambiguity that's there. But, interesting, the Eastern churches talk about the Dormition with that understanding that when the figures of old fall asleep, we think about it with Christians too. We come to sleep in Jesus, we die. But the language of falling asleep is full of hope because that which falls asleep will be awakened again. But we look to the resurrection of the dead, a death to things in this world, a death in the Lord. Anglicans have long celebrated this day as the falling asleep of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But just to really root it here, Catechism, the Catholic Church, Article 966, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. It's quoting from Lumen Gentium. Okay, and that's end of her life. That could be she died or not. But then it goes on in the article to quote from the Byzantine liturgy to say that the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians, which is not the quote, but here it is. In giving birth, you kept your virginity. In your dermission, you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. They quote the Byzantine liturgy. They use the word dormition, which in the East is understood as her falling asleep. I don't know how many of you have seen the icon that goes with the dormition. It's really moved me when first I saw it. Just you have the scene, the earthly scene of the Blessed Mother laid out in, in death, the apostles gathered around, but then you get the glimpse of the heavenly. And there's the the mother, but now wrapped in swaddling bands and taken into her son's arms. And you've got him holding her as she held him in this world. It's the new birth into that life. But we're reborn of God as we die to that old life and are raised up in him. Some have argued that she was the immaculate one, though. She wasn't subject to death. That was the penalty of original sin and she was immaculately conceived. However, our New Testament incident that is of the assumption is, in fact, our Lord himself who goes up, the sinless one, the perfect man, who did die. He was without sin, and yet the nature he took on in his flesh was that which was under the effects of the fall. It was a mortal body that could suffer and age and die. That's the nature he inherited from his mother. 
She too, yes, immaculately conceived, but still under those effects of of suffering and aging and dying. He's raised up, not simply taken up, he goes to the grave first. It's not a resuscitation. We know it's a resurrection from the dead. We know that in his resurrection that it's not the body as it went into the tomb, and yet it is the same body but changed. There's flesh and bone that his disciples can can handle. They know it is himself. He's got the wounds yet. But what was mortal has now put on immortality. What was the earthly has now become the heavenly. He's taken up to be at the Father's right hand. This is again, if you go to our catechism and look at the language around death, talks about that separation of body and soul. What we look to in the resurrection of the dead as we are delivered from our sins, as we're cleansed and purified, is that reunion of the whole person, the perfect nature, the complete nature, to be raised up. And so we talk about a bodily resurrection. In Jesus, he is without sin. As he's raised up, all is together and is taken up to the Father and the way is opened for us. But Mary likewise, as one who has already been purified preveniently ahead of time at her conception by that gift of her son, his redeeming love, his redeeming sacrifice, is likewise at the end of her life brought back together to be raised up And is a sign for us of what our resurrection is to be, the way that stands before us. Um, I often, when I'm going through the letter to the Romans with students in the class, I I speak about the fifth chapter being the one that that speaks of kind of the the objective word about what God has done in Christ. Then you go to the sixth chapter and it speaks about the subjective not in the sense of just from our opinion or something, but what, how it takes hold of us, how it comes to, to bear in our lives. And in many ways, what we see in Jesus accomplished, in Mary we see that objective reality taking that subjective form. This is what it looks like in, in us who are redeemed by him, those who are the, the inheritors of Adam and Eve. Of course, when we talk about Mary... We often speak of her as that, that new Eve. The one who, as our first mother, went her own way, said no to God's word, actually said to her husband, do my will, as she gave him the fruit. We go to the, the new Eve, the last Eve, the one who, the wedding feast, Canaan Galilee, is, is addressed as woman. And there are to be those echoes of the first woman. But who there says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And water becomes wine, and we know that the wine in his hands also will become his precious blood, that redeeming power to give us life. As I've often said of Eve and Mary, that the first Eve, yes, was so called because she was mother of all the living but she was also mother of all the dead because all who 
were her offspring, were under the curse of death. We're all mortal. But those who are reborn of Jesus, the Son of Mary, become those who are alive eternally in Him, the last Adam. One last image. One last image because it draws in our lesson tonight. And that's that of the ark. Mary is the ark of the new covenant, which when I'm talking about the assumption, you know, I'm looking for the things that fill out the background, the things that set the tone. But we can rightly say, well, the assumption doesn't happen in Scripture. I mean, it's post-biblical. Except when you go to the last book of the Bible, there are these interesting glimpses. We see back into the past, we see the present moment, but also the future opens up and the heavenly glories. We saw things open up in heaven. We do this strange business. I think I've been grumbling a lot lately about us skipping over bits of verses and verses in lessons. But in this case, we we start at the end of chapter 11, and we only have part of the verse. We miss the rest of it that says, And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavenly hail. As the things of heaven are opened, we see the temple of God. We see the ark within the temple. The ark of the covenant. That sign in the wilderness of God's presence with his people the covering over it, the atonement cover, the mercy seat as it was called, was the place where the the cloud of God's presence came down in the wilderness, where they offered the sacrifice for the atonement of the people. And there was some understanding that the blood of the sacrifice laid out was encountered by the Lord's presence coming down and their atonement was made. I've spoken of this before. Some will remember that the language used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe, it's back in in Exodus Exodus 40, verse 35, the, the cloud of the Lord overshadowing the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. The verb is apiskiazo. It's the same word that is used then in Luke chapter 1 as the angel tells Mary that that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will overshadow her. And therefore, the, the child to be conceived will be called holy. And so as the, the cloud of God's presence, the cloud of the Holy Spirit comes over Mary, we know there is conceived the one who is God and man, the one who is her child to bear into the world. The Revelation passage, the the vision in heaven is immediately followed by that sign, that portent in heaven of the woman with child who is in the mystery of the last book of the Bible is the church as Holy Mother is Jerusalem, is the mother of Jesus, the mother of God's people and the, the disciples of Jesus. And you remember, you remember at the foot of the cross, that we're with the beloved disciple who is a sign in so many ways of all of us, who wants to be known as anything more than the beloved of Jesus, the beloved disciple of the Lord, and the mother. And they're given into each other's care. 
Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that day, he took her into his home. She was prepared, specially blessed among women above all women, to bear him in her own flesh and to be the consummate example of those who do the will of the Father in heaven, whom Jesus described as his brothers and sister and mother. She was God's choice, and his choice was not arbitrary. He knew what he was doing. She is the sign for us, the one for us to look to as we look to what we are to be in him. Now in her assumption, she shows us what will be our end as our bodies are set free from sin and transformed by Christ's grace into the likeness of his glorious body. And we are welcomed home with her to be forever in heaven with him, her precious son, Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost is one God, ever world without end. Amen. Amen. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name.